So I'm excited, and I'm always excited, but I'm excited particularly today because uh, it's funny, this is one of those messages that I've had in the back sort of burner, uh, kind of knowing someday I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to teach on this, I'm just waiting for the day, and, and here it is. And so <laughs> the day is here, and so that's exciting for me. Um, you know, I, I uh, don't want to get your, your expectations too high, but it's sometimes you just, you know, have that and then it, you feel, okay, this is the time. And it, it, you'll see it fits right into the series we've been uh, doing for the last, geez, I think we started in April. But we're in the middle of a series on the Holy Spirit, which really goes along with the theme of 2017, which is really the theme, hopefully you know by now, uh, if you've been here, it's the, it should be the theme of our entire Christian walk, which is the presence-driven life. Um, and so today we're going to be talking about that. Um, I just realized I have the, the wrong sermon up here, so I got to... <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, just one second, please. Yeah, well, you know me. I got so many scriptures that I just got to... I don't know. I have them all memorized. No, that's good. It was my... Yeah. <laughs> okay, so we're talking about the temple today. And, and all along, the last few times, we've alluded to it a few times. But, but you'll see today why it's a little bit different uh, than what, we, what we've gone into before. But for those of you who are new, I'd like to start off just saying this so you know where I'm coming from. That uh, really, in my opinion, and I think... Uh, maybe you would agree, I don't know, but that uh, in general, the Holy Spirit's really been neglected in the church, uh, in Christian theology in general. So, you know, of course, we, we pay lip service to the Holy Spirit, but you don't hear much about him often. Not, this isn't always the case, of course, but this goes across the board from, you know, Christian scholars, Christian theology, all the way to the pulpit. Um, so you'd say, yeah, of course I believe in Father, Son, Holy Spirit, but I'm talking about getting neglected, not only experientially, but in theology. So he often gets left to the periphery, and then people get really nervous when you start talking about him. Uh, people get offended, in fact, if you talk about him too much. Uh, and, <laughs> and I know that from personal experience, uh, which is kind of funny. Because if you think about it, if you talk about Jesus, you could talk about Jesus till the cows come home, and you would get nothing but amens. But if you talk about the Holy Spirit too much, you can get, right? I'm telling you, it's a thing. And I think part of it is because he's been neglected. Because if you think about it, how could you overemphasize God? You know what I'm saying? It's the same thing. So people wouldn't bat an eye if you went months without talking about the Holy Spirit. But if you spend one message or one series, in my case, talking about him, people get nervous sometimes. Hopefully not you guys, but you know what I'm saying. And, and it's just true. Um, and I think part of that is a symptom of the bigger issue that we just neglect the Holy Spirit altogether for the most part. And so I've been really uh, hammering this home and going deep in regards to theology in particular uh, on the Holy Spirit, okay? Because he lies at the heart of everything in the New Testament theology, everything, everything. Now, of course, Christ is the center of our theology, but he's right next to Christ at the center of our theology of all of our Christian life and experience. Um, and so what, what I've been kind of, every time I, I talk about this, I sort of put up this slide here that shows you some of this, what, talk about the center of New Testament theology. Um, and there's, of course, more than this, but uh, these three things we've been really focusing on uh, in particular. So the Spirit is the key to the eschatological framework. Uh, if you, we've been focusing on that the last few times if you're interested, but that's essentially a, a fancy pants word for uh, the end times, the time of the end. 
Um, and, that, and you'll see that's an essential framework for all New Testament uh, theology uh, because that's, the, that's where Jesus came from in his message of the kingdom of God. Um, that it's already here and it's not yet, and we're living in between the times of the first and second coming of Christ, and how the Holy Spirit plays a crucial role to that. Um, the Spirit also is the key to the experience dimension of salvation in Christ, which is the central issue of the New Testament. And then uh, the Spirit is the key of, uh, to what it means for us to become the people of God, which is the central goal that God has in all this, to create a people for His name. Um, and so we've been really focusing kind of on the first one, but they're all related, uh, they are all related, so inevitably they, they kind of get mixed in here and there. At some time, we're going to probably soon focus on salvation because that's so important. Um, and today, we're, we're, it's still kind of in the eschatological framework, but it's going to actually be uh, the intro to what it means for us to become the people of God in some ways. And you'll see what I mean when we uh, go further today. But from the Old Testament heritage, the early church understood the Spirit's coming as fulfilling at least three related promises or expectations from the Old Testament. Now, if you're interested, the last two times I've spent uh, quite a bit on this, so I'm not going to go too much in detail. But other than to say this, uh, review here, that these three major expectations of the new covenant, of the kingdom of God, of the day of the Lord, of the latter days, uh, is this, okay? The association of the Spirit with the new covenant. And last time we spent a whole bunch of time on Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27, and Ezekiel 37, 14, showing how influential these promises of the new covenant were and that the Holy Spirit was one of the main things they were expecting. They knew when the Holy Spirit came back, that meant that the, we're in the new covenant. Okay? So we talked about that two times ago in particular in detail. Last time we spent some time talking about the language of indwelling. Okay? And so if you're interested, you could check these out on ctfottawa.com or our podcast. But today we're moving on to the association of the Spirit with the imagery of the temple. We're going to see why that's so important. So by fulfilling the new covenant and the renewed temple promises, the Spirit became the way that God is now present on the earth. And if you remember the second message in this series, we talked about how the presence of God is so crucial from beginning to end in the Bible, and that it's all about the restoration of the lost presence of God. And the Holy Spirit was that restoration, and that's what we're going to talk about today. So today's message, this is sort of just the uh, review of what we're talking about, the overview, these main points, is that the significance of the, we're going to talk about the significance of the temple imagery in the new covenant as the place of God's dwelling. <laughs> it's amazing. It's an amazing thing. But in order to understand that, is that you got to understand the significance of the temple in the Old Testament as well. Because that the Old Testament was synonymous with the place of God's presence, the place where God dwells. And that's where he dwelt among his people, is the temple. And that's why the destruction of the temple was so devastating in the Old Testament. The importance of the local church. Now, you can see this is really relevant to us. The importance of the local church is God's temple, the place where his presence dwells in the New Testament. Okay? The, so the local, not the building. I want to make that clear. People get, get uh, uh, sometimes mixed up in understanding. We're talking about the gathered assembly of people. We together are the temple, not the building we meet in. Okay? Just, just to make that clear off the bat. And the implications for us as a local church. Because this has tremendous implications for us as a local body of Christ. Um, so we're going to end on that. So 
Some of this will be a little bit of review for people. I'm not going to go into too much detail because we've spent so much time in the past on this, but it's essential for understanding the imagery of the temple to give you at least a little bit of a review uh, for those of you who weren't here for the first message, a couple messages. So the renewed temple and the people of the presence. So I kind of mentioned this, but the theme of the presence of God is crucial to the whole entire Bible from beginning to end. Okay, so in Genesis... Adam and Eve had had this fellowship in the presence of God unhindered in the garden. Then, of course, they fell, sin entered in, and they got banished from the presence of God. And then from that time, of course, sin entered in, but God has been in his plan of redemption trying to redeem us to get back to that place where we're back to where we unfortunately messed up in the garden where we would have this unhindered fellowship in his presence once again. And the interesting thing is if you read the first three chapters of Genesis and the last three chapters of Revelation, that's a whole story. (laughs) The final end is that when the second coming of Christ happens and the kingdom of God is manifest in its fullness, that we're back in the presence of God face to face, just like Adam and Eve were in the garden. So so this whole story is is, is showing God's plan of redemption Uh, from the beginning to end, and it's all about the presence of God. It's all about intimacy with God. Okay? So, the, the book of Exodus, the interesting thing is, the book of Exodus, the key, structural key of the book of Exodus is this idea of the renewing of the presence of God. You see this from in chapter 3 when Moses sees the burning bush, and then, and then it culminates in, in Exodus 19 where he's on Sinai and the people of Israel are out of Egypt and there's thunder and lightning and God's manifest presence is there and Moses is on the mount and he wants to make a people for his name, a people of the presence. That's the whole point. So he makes this covenant with them because he wants to dwell among a people who would be his people, okay? So then he makes this covenant when they agree to, yeah, we want to be your people. We want, and so he makes this covenant. Then he gives them instructions of the tabernacle. Then there's the debacle in, in, in chapter 32 where they're worshiping the golden calf. And then what does he say? My presence will not go with you. That's the key. It's the whole entire point. My presence isn't going to go with you guys because I'll destroy you if I do. And then what happens? Moses intercedes and says, if your presence doesn't go with us, don't send us from here. Because how will we be distinguished from all the other people of the face of the earth? In other words, the one thing that distinguished them as the people of God is the presence of God. That God himself dwelled in their midst in the tabernacle. So then God relented and he went through with it. They built the tabernacle. Then the book culminates in, in, in Exodus 40, 35, where it says the glory filled the tabernacle. The presence of God was now back with them. The renewal of the presence. Okay. Then if you fast forward, <laughs> sorry, I, I gotta, I'm realizing I'm going more in depth than I wanted to because I've talked about this before. But if you fast forward, God says in Deuteronomy, I'm going to make a place for my name to dwell. And this gets fulfilled in Solomon's temple. Fast forward to 1 Kings 8, chapter 11. Solomon builds the temple. We're talking about this today. The temple, this is really significant. And what happens is when it's finally built, the exact same thing happens that happened in Exodus 40, 35. It says the glory of the Lord filled the temple. They couldn't even stand to minister. 
That was the permanent place of his presence. Okay, so, that's, so then what happened because of that, Jerusalem and the temple were regularly described as the place where Yahweh chose for his name to dwell because that's where his presence was, in the most holy place, in the midst of the people. So the temple is known as the place of God's dwelling, and it became the focal point of Israel's existence in the promised land. How they longed to go to the temple to be in the presence of God. You see this throughout the, the Psalms. It was all about the presence. Okay? And this is exact, because their identity was the people of God, the people of the presence was super devastating when the temple was destroyed, when they got uh, set into captivity in Babylon. Why was that so devastating? Because the temple was destroyed. And you see this in Exodus, not Exodus, I'm sorry, Ezekiel chapter 10, where the glory actually departs from the temple. The temple's destroyed, and they're, they're no lo- they lose their identity because they're no longer the people of the presence. He's gone. But there's hope. Ezekiel prophesies in, uh, at the end of Ezekiel, chapter 40 on, especially 43, where there's a promised second temple. This prophetic hope of the second temple. Okay, this becomes important. Where God will once again come and dwell among his people. Now the problem is, is after they got out of captivity, they built a second temple and they were devastated because why? The glory did not come back. You see their disappointment in Haggai chapter 2, I think it's verse 9, where it says, who has been, who here has seen the glory of the latter temple? Is this temple like nothing in your sight? This is nothing in comparison. Why? The glory didn't come back. So then they, they went into this time of deep devastation. And it became known as the time of the quenched spirit. Where there's no more Holy Spirit in the land because they believe the glory departed. The Holy Spirit departed. And that's why there's no prophetic books from from Malachi to John the Baptist. Because they believe the Holy Spirit left. Because the Holy Spirit left. There's no prophets in the land. And because there's no uh, prophets in the land. They're waiting for this end time kingdom of God to come. The day of the Lord where he would usher in his kingdom. The Holy Spirit would come back. And it would be awesome because he's going to totally overthrow this age of Satan. So Joel 2.28 where it says, In the last days I'll pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. The prophets are coming back. But everyone's going to prophesy now because we're going to be a people of the presence. The age of the spirit. That become a to- became a totally end time promise to them. They're like, this is, when this happens, when the Holy Spirit comes back, we're in the last days. We're in the end times. So this is why on the day of Pentecost, in Joel chapter 2, what does he do? He quotes Joel 2.28, and he says, This is fulfilling which spoken by Joel the prophet in the last days. I'll pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Why was that so significant? Because that meant that was a fulfillment of all these promises that the Holy Spirit was going to come back, the renewal of the presence of God, and we would once again, as the people of God, become the people of the presence. Okay? So, the point is, because he chose to to concentrate the temple in Jerusalem, the tabernacle first in Exodus, and then the temple became known primary symbols of God's presence among his people. This is why the temple imagery is so significant and important in the New Testament. Okay? 
And this, we're going to talk more about this later, but I have to lay this foundation a little bit, even though we've talked about this before, just so you can understand, okay, this is why the, the, te- the temple is so significant. The symbolism of it is so important because it was synonymous with the place where his presence dwelt. Now, I have to say this so we understand the spirit is God's presence. Okay, they understood the Holy Spirit is God's manifest presence. And you see this in the Old Testament. And this is what the early church understood as well. The presence of God in the narrative of Exodus, we talked a little bit about that, was understood in the prophetic tradition as the Spirit of God. And you see this in Isaiah 63, 9 through 14. We've talked about this before, so I'm not going to go into too much detail other than to say he explicitly equates the presence of God with the Holy Spirit in their midst in the book of Exodus when he's recalling what happened in the desert. And he said, you guys grieve the Holy Spirit. And he actually calls him the presence of God. The Holy presence of God led them out, and he calls him the Holy Spirit. And you see this in the Psalms as well. I just have one example here. This is Psalm 139, verse 7. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? You see, they use those interchangeably. The Spirit of God is the presence of God. So the presence of God, the people of the presence, what made them that? The Holy Spirit was in their midst. This is why in, in, in Ezekiel, when he prophesies about the new covenant, he says, I'm going to put my spirit in you and inspire you to follow my decrees and laws because the presence of God is coming back among his people. So it was that presence that was lost in Israel's exile that was now restored, first in the coming of Christ, then at the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out on, on Pentecost, the birth of the church. Why? Because that was what they were waiting for. That was the one sign, that in the resurrection of the dead, that the new covenant had been ushered in. This was the return of the Spirit, the renewal of God's presence among his people. And this is why the temple imagery is so significant in the New Testament. The temple was always understood as the place of God's presence. And so for the early church, the Spirit is how God himself presently dwells in his holy temple. And then we're going to move on to talk about this more. The temple as God's gathered community of people, okay? Now, I I need to say this. Last time we focused mostly on the individual, and you're going to see that's, uh, that's sort of a function of our culture. We become so individualistic, and that really is rooted in the Enlightenment, and we're all children of the Enlightenment, whether we like it or not. And we become so individualistic that we read a whole bunch of scriptures as individualistic scriptures when they have nothing to do with the individual. They have to do with the gathered community. And this is a perfect example. How many of you, when you hear temple of the Holy Spirit, you think person? You think individual, right? Yeah. There's only one scripture, one scripture where it says that about the individual. That's 1 Corinthians 6, 19, where he calls, he says, your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit individually. But that's actually the secondary use of that imagery. He, uh, more often than not, four times Paul uses that in the New Testament, three out of four of the times is about the gathered community of people. And actually, the one I'm going to emphasize today in 1 Corinthians 3 happens before 1 Corinthians 6. So he's actually using the imagery of the church as a gathered community as an uh, imagery for the individual. But that's the secondary, secondary usage in Paul. But the point is is that through Christ's sacrifice of himself on our behalf, we now have access to God's presence by the Spirit. That's awesome. Okay, so we live in his presence with a veil removed. 
Someday we'll go more in detail on that. That's from 2 Corinthians chapter 3. The whole entire chapter is about this. So one thing that distinguishes us from the Old Covenant is the Spirit of God. The implications of this central matter for the early church are considerable for us. Okay, so, so, it's so this is so relevant. This is our identity as the people of God, the people of the presence. So God himself has taken up residence with his people indwelling them. So we talked about individually in their hearts, and that's a fulfillment of a whole bunch of scriptures from the Old Testament, particularly Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27. But this indwelling not only happens in their individual lives, but also in the corporate gatherings for worship and instruction, what we're doing right now. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit in the New Covenant, the gathered community. Okay, so God's now returned to dwell in his temple and is used, this imagery of the temple is used for his church, particularly the local gathering of people, the people of God who are gathered in his name. And this is the place of his presence. So our gathered assemblies are now the people among whom God's presence has chosen to dwell. And this is why the church is now referred to as his, his temple. Okay, and this is what sets his people, us, as a gathered community apart from all the other peoples on the face of the earth. Oh, can you go ahead uh, two more? Let's see. Ephesians chapter 2. Yeah, perfect. Verse 19 to 22. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people. And also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become the holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together, look at this, to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. He's talking about the church. So we together are being built as his temple now in the New Testament, as a, where God's spirit lives, right? You can see that language. He's dwelling now by his spirit because his spirit is his presence, and this is where his presence dwells in the New Covenant. Now, what I want to say is that's from Ephesians, the book of Ephesians. And the book of Ephesians deals more with the church uh, in a broader universal sense, Okay. So, so if you read the book of Ephesians, it has to do more with the church universal rather than the local uh, church, the local assembled church. Okay, so the question of Ephesians is what's the church is God, is the people of God universally? Now, this is the, the great concern of that book is really Jews and Gentiles and how they become members of the same body in the same temple. And that's really the language that he uses both metaphors in that book. But what I want to talk about today, because I think it's, uh, particularly relevant to this topic of the temple of God, but also to us as a local assembly, as a local church. Okay? It's the book of 1 Corinthians. Now, the book of 1 Corinthians is where we find mo the most important teaching on the nature of the local assembly. I'm talking about the whole entire book now. Okay? And there's so many important principles in that book. What it means for us to be a people of God. What it means for us to get, what happens when we get together and worship. Okay, what the focus should be. In fact, out of the whole New Testament, there's more on what worship, there's very little on what their worship looked like when they got together in the early church. But the one place that gives us probably the most clues out of anything, especially in the letters, the epistles, is chapters 12 through 14. What it might have actually looked like to be in the church. And there's only hints even in that. 
Okay, but the lo- but but the, where you the information you get from this book is the local gathering of God's people in terms of what they are to be as a local church and what they're to be like as the people of God. And this is why that book is so important. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 in particular, and this is what we're going to talk about today, has the most significant use of temple imagery and teaching about what the church is, arguably in the Bible. Okay, and so this is one of the most important scriptures in the New Testament as to Paul's understanding of the character and significance of the local church. This gives the local church a lot of dignity. <laughs> okay, when, when you see how highly God values the local church precisely because we're his temple now in the new covenant. Okay, but so we're going to, so what I'm going to do today, I don't often do this, I, I give you guys tons of scriptures, but I'm actually going to go through this chapter it's not that long, but you'll see, because it's important contextually to understand what Paul's even saying, because it's one of the most important, arguably, scriptures on the uh, local church in the New Testament. So the temple is the local church in 1 Corinthians 3. Now, before I go into chapter 3, I want to show you this, to give you some context. This is just, I mean, ideally, you would read chapters 1 and 2, <laughs> But I think this is probably more pertinent to what we're going to talk about in chapter 3. So this is uh, 1 Corinthians 1. 10 to 12. He says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, that there be no divisions among you. Okay, I have that highlighted because that's a key, talking about divisions now. But that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. That's the second key, quarrels, divisions, okay? What I mean is this, one of you says I follow Paul, another I follow Apollos, another I follow Cephas, another I follow Christ. So they're having divisions and they're doing it in the name of these leaders. Oh, I follow so and so, and he's, he's royally rebuking them, okay? Now what I want to do is fast forward to chapter 3 now in light of that. So, so we're just going to start in verse 1 and go through it, but first I'm going to show you verse 1 through 4. Look at the, what's interesting about this, and it'll be, this will be particularly interesting, I hope, for you, those of you who've been here the last few weeks when we've talked about the significance of being God's, quote-unquote, eschatological people. Does anyone, do you know what we're supposed to be? Jennifer, do you want, I'm going to put you on the spot. Do you know, what, it, what is it that God's end time, what we're supposed to be is the church? Can you do this or no? What's the, what's the sentence that I'm maybe looking for? Filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay, yeah, but how are we supposed to live right now? Okay, so we're supposed to live as if, uh, um, like we're living the future because we are living uh, as it's going to be in heaven, but we're living it on earth. Thank you. Sorry to do that to you. <laughs> I don't know why I did that. Um, <laughs> you, you passed, A+. A+. We are supposed to be living at, they under, the early church understood themselves as God's end time people. Living in the present evil age, bringing heaven to earth now in the present evil age. This is why in Acts chapter 2, which I talked about earlier, they said this is to fulfill what Joel the prophet said, in my last days I will, look at this, in my last days. They understood themselves to be in the last days. And that changed everything for them. Why? Because the Holy Spirit came back and the resurrection of Christ happened. The two things they're waiting for, that would be signposts that we're in the age to come. That the kingdom of God came back. So they're God's end time people. You see this throughout the whole New Testament. Paul says, you're citizens of heaven in Philippians 3.20. Live like it. 
And you see this over and over and over and over again. Paul appeals to the fact that we are God's end time people supposed to be living the future kingdom of God in the present evil age, showing people what heaven's like. Spreading the gospel of the kingdom. Not the gospel of salvation. Salvation is a part of it, but the gospel of the kingdom, Jesus says. Then the end will come. When we preach the gospel of the kingdom. This is why I did a whole series on the kingdom. <laughs> if you guys remember, 11 messages on this because this is Jesus' number one teaching. We talked about this the most out of anything he talked about. Anything. The kingdom of God is here. And we're supposed to be living that way. Okay? Why am I saying this? Paul, appeal, Paul says these puzzling things that we can't even relate to because we have lost that. That's why I'm, I'm spending so much time on this. Trying to, guys, this is what we're called to be as the people of God. This is who we're called to be as the people of God. This is who we're called to be as the people of God. As God's heavenly people future end-time people living in the present tense, showing people what heaven's like. That's what we're called to be. That affected everything that the early, the early church's theology, the way they lived in the present, the way they thought about the future, their theology, everything, is that they had this perspective. Now, in light of that, look what Paul does here. This is so bizarre, if you don't have that understanding, that what he says here, okay? I'll, I'll show you what I mean. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as what? People who live by the Spirit. That's what we're supposed to do. People who live, we're supposed to be living in the realm of the Spirit, the age to come, the age of the Spirit. People who live by the Spirit. He says, I can't address you as these people who are living by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly. That's actually the word flesh. The flesh spirit conscious. We're going to be talking about that in the future. Mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you are not yet ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready. You're still worldly. You're still living in the flesh. You're still living in the age, the old age, the evil age. You're still living under the dominion of Satan. You're supposed to be living as God's people by the Spirit, okay? Walking by the Spirit, being led by the Spirit. So, you're still worldly. For since there's jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Look at this. This is what I'm talking about. This is so weird. Are you not acting like mere human beings? Like, Matt, just think, what? We are human beings. Imagine I said that to you. Are you not acting like a human being? When you, yeah, I am one. What, what's Paul's point? Why, why would this work? Because they didn't think they were part of this age anymore. They, they thought they were God's heavenly end-time people People of the Spirit living right now, not as mere human beings, not as the age of the flesh, not as these worldly people. We are God's end time heavenly people trying to show people what heaven's like. Aren't you just acting like them? Aren't you just acting like the people who are still in the age of the flesh? Mere human beings? Like this, is, this seems weird, but this is why. They had this perspective. This wasn't weird to them to think this way. Then he goes on. For one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Paulus. Are you not mere human beings? He says it again. <laughs> like, that's an insult. Because it was an insult. We're supposed to be people of the Spirit. 
That's what that word is. People live by the Spirit is pneumatikos. If you were here, we talked about spiritual, the word spiritual. That means it's an adjective pertaining to the Holy Spirit. You're people of the Spirit. People living the age of the Spirit by the Holy Spirit in the present tense. Citizens of heaven. Okay? Not mere human beings. So then he goes on. This is, so the verse, uh, um, sorry, five. What after all is Apollos? And what's Paul? Only servants. You see, he's trying to get them to not think according to this world's standards. The world's system exalts leaders. Oh, I follow Paul. I follow Paulus. I follow Bill Johnson. I follow Mike Bickle. I follow Rick Joyner. It's the same thing. It's the, it's the systems of this world influencing the values that we're supposed to transcend these things. We're supposed to be living like heaven. We're the greatest of all, the servant of all. And Paul has to remind them of this. Guys, what, what is Paul? What's a, we're servants. How absurd is it to exalt servants? He says mere farmers of a field. Okay, so he says only servants are whom you came to believe as the Lord is assigned to each his task. Then Paul says, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. That's the point. God is the one who's making it grow. Yeah, sure, I played my part and I've sowed. Apollos is watering it, but it's God who makes it grow. We're just mere servants. We're just farmers, servants of the farmers. Field. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes it grow. The one who plants and the one who waters has one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service. You, the church in Corinth, are God's field. You're God's, then he switches metaphors, God's building. This is so important. Because our culture is so individualistic, we always take that you to mean you individually. You individually are God's field. You individually are God's building. No. No. <laughs> That is not what Paul is saying at all. Okay, and how can I be so confident? You just look. The problem is, in English, the word you, we only have one word for both plural and singular. So when I say you, I could be saying you guys or you, Diane. Okay, it's the same word. But you have to understand, most Eng most, almost every other language makes this distinction. And in fact, if you read the King James Version, <laughs> you know, that was written like 400 years ago, they make this distinguish, distinction in English. Even they make this, ye and thee. Ye is you plural when you see that. Thee is you singular, okay? So even the King James does this, but not our, not our uh, modern vernacular. So we have to almost go back to the Greek and understand the word here is plural. You. Plural. <laughs> and if you're ever not sure, just check out the King James, I guess, because that's the only English version you're going to see this distinction. Like, how many of you know that verse in Philippians 2 where it says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling? How many of you have read that individual? Probably all of us, I'm guessing, if you, if you think. That's, that he's, that's a plural you. That's plural. He's saying you together as God's gathered people work out your own salvation and, uh, with fear and trembling to, as a community. It's actually plural. But because we're so, we have bifocals on because we're so individualistic and it's all about me, my personal relationship with God, where Paul's main concern was the people of God as a gathered community, more often than not. 
Okay, so I'm trying to hit this home because this verse, this portion of scripture I'm about to read, every single message essentially I've ever heard on this was taken individually. And Paul's saying no. He's, he's saying this is plural. <laughs> okay, the local church. Okay. And I just had to get that off my chest. So when, <laughs> but it's so important for understanding this chapter. So when Paul says in verse 9, you are God's field, he's referring to the whole community. Then he concludes by saying you're God's building. Now he's just switching metaphors because he's a city guy. He doesn't know anything about farming. So he's like, man, I've used all the you know, information I have about farming. I'm going to talk about a building now. <laughs> probably. I don't know. That's probably what I would have done. Who knows anything about farming? Sowing, watering. Okay, I'm done now. Let's talk about a building. So the church is the building, not individuals. You, the church in Corinth, are God's building in Corinth. Now look at this. Verse 10 through 15. By the grace God has given me, I laid the foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. He laid the foundation as the church, not as in your individual life, okay? But each should build with care. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. So important. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, the work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. Talking about judgment day now. Talking about when Jesus comes back. And if you're interested, how many of you here, we did a whole series on the eternal perspective last year for like six months. Talked all about this kind of stuff. Because we're going to be judged for how we steward what we're given on this earth. So Paul says right here, guys, that, the day's going to... You might be fooling people, but when you meet the Lord face to face, it's going to show when the test comes what's actually built properly according to his foundation and what's not. What's wood, hay, and straw. So their work will be shown for what it is by the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it's burnt up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved even though as one merely escaping through the flames. Now, I've said this, so I probably don't have to say it again, but I will anyway, that in our individualistic culture, we've mostly read this individually. How many of you have ever heard of sermon on this or have read this individually? As, as when we're talking about the building, they're talking about your individual life. Yeah? No? Okay. <laughs> Maybe I lost you guys. But the point is he's talking about the church. And he's, he's addressing leaders in the church, the people who are building the church. He switches from, he's talking about Apollos water, or, uh, watering. Now he's saying, okay, when we're gone, Cephas, Apollos, me, Paul, and you guys are left, be careful how you build. He's talking to the local leaders now, the people who are a part of building the church. Because if you build, the ones who are leading down this destructive path of, of get, creating divisions and quarrels among, and saying, I follow so-and-so and I follow so-and-so, those people he's talking to you, okay? So, Paul laid the foundation, but there's other people building the church now. So the whole point of this paragraph is this imperative, but each one should build with care. Why? Because it's possible to build for eternity or to build for the present temporal world. <laughs> okay? So you can either be building for eternity or you can be building with wood, hay, and straw, and that's going to all get burnt up. It's meaningless. It might look good and successful to the world standards, but it's going to be burnt up when you meet the Lord face to face. 
So the point is build with the stuff that's going to endure, okay? Don't build with the stuff that's not going to last when the day of judgment comes. Now, I just want to say this because he's hinting at the temple now, okay? By using this imagery, gold, silver, costly stones, he's saying use eternal building materials that are congruent with the foundation, which is Jesus Christ, not worldly wisdom, not according to the standards of this age. It's according to the standards of the age to come. Okay, so we have to build with materials that are consistent with the values and lifestyle of the kingdom, not of this world. Man, is that hard to distinguish sometimes. Because we're so conditioned by our present world that we define success in terms of how the world defines success. That is not how we should be defining success. If you look at it objectively, John the Baptist would be tremendously unsuccessful according to this world system. Think about it. Locust, honey, desert, weird, probably dreadlock guy dies at the age of probably 30-something, like 31 or something. Unsuccessful, according to this world. How many of you know he was tremendously successful in God's eyes? In fact, Jesus said he's, he was the greatest born of a woman up until that point. So we can't judge according to this world's system. But we're so conditioned by the successful, def whatever we define success as, numbers, money, whatever, whatever's relevant these days, wood, hay, and stubble, wood, hay, and stubble. And we cannot be conditioned by those things. That's not to say, that's not to say God doesn't do that sometimes, but we cannot use that as our definition of success. No way. Okay. So look at this. He's actually explicitly, now we're talking about the temple now, using language from 1 Chronicles 29 to verse 2. This is David talking about constructing the old temple in Jerusalem before he died. He says, with all my resources I provided for the temple of my God. Gold for the gold work, silver for the silver work, bronze for the bronze, iron for the iron, wood for the wood, as well as onyx, the setting of turquoise, stones of various colors, and all kinds of fine stone and marble for all these large, in large quantities. In 2 Chronicles 3, 6, he adorned the temple with, now this is talking about Solomon, with precious stones. And he used the gold. You see the language there. He's using that language, alluding and hinting to the fact that you use this same building materials as you use for the foundation, and he's, he's talking about the temple now, because we're the temple, and you're going to see that's what he says in a few verses. Wood, hay, and straw, temporal building materials, I already kind of talked about this, but that are based off the wisdom of this world and the standards of this age, and he actually says that in, later in verse 18, we'll talk about that. Now the point is, many churches are built off the wisdom and values and lifestyle of this world, not of the kingdom. This is a temptation we have to fight all the time. Because you just look at the latest Christian magazine for churches. Everything has to do with numbers. Everything has to do with money. Everything has to do with relevance. Everything has to do with the values of this world. What's the difference between us and the business down the road? That's all for profit if we don't keep this in straight. Okay? Sometimes there's gray areas and fine lines, but we cannot define success in terms of how the business world is defining success. Okay, we can't fall into that, succumb to that temptation. And it's all around us. Okay? So, that is incongruent with Christ and him crucified. A crucified Messiah. That is totally contrary to the values and systems of the world. That's foolishness to this world, he says earlier in Corinthians. Chapter 1, verse 18 through 25. Foolishness to this world. 
a crucified Messiah, the ultimate oxymoron, foolishness, but that's the wisdom of God. Okay, and we have to align ourselves with the wisdom of God, not with the wisdom of this world. Praying for discernment all the time. So the point is that God's temple has to be made with the same stuff as the foundation or it's not going to make it. It's not going to make it. So you have to build the church on Jesus Christ as the only foundation, as the only stuff of the superstructure. Gold, silver, precious stones. We must stay away from the wisdom of this age that's passing away. Now, this is a quote that I don't know who, I just heard Rick Joyner say this. I don't know who he's quoting, but I think it's so true. The Jews turned Christianity into a religion. The Greeks turned Christianity into a philosophy. The Romans turned Christianity into an institution. And the Americans turned Christianity into a business enterprise. I would say North Americans there. I, I, I'm not implicating our neighbor. We're just as implicated in this than, than Americans, North Americans, for sure. This is wood, hay, and stubble. All of this. Wood, hay, and stubble. In fact, the philosophy that Paul's calling wood, hay, and stubble is exactly what I'm talking about here, the Greek philosophy. Because they were defining the gospel in terms of Greek wisdom and philosophy. Then he goes, now, <laughs> concludes here now. This is how serious this is. This is probably the most serious warning in the entire New Testament in regards especially to the local church. Okay, verse 16 and 17, he brings us all to his biting conclusion. It's the strongest warning with regard to how people must understand and conduct themselves in the local church. Look at this. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? Okay, that's <laughs> what we're talking about today. You are God's temple. And that God's spirit dwells in your midst. That's what makes you God's temple. You're the dwelling place of God by his Holy Spirit. If Look at this is the warning. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. How common is divisions? How common are church splits? How common is people... That's what he's creating division. That's one of the most reoccurring issues in the New Testament. Factions, dissensions, he calls those works of the flesh. Divisions, quarreling, divisions, right? That's why I started off in chapter 1 to show you. That's what the issues were. And he says, guys, this is how serious this is. You're destroying God's temple. This isn't, a, this isn't an insignificant thing, okay? So I want, you to, I want you to remember here, he's not talking about individuals. Most people, because of our individualism, take this to mean you're, you, personally, individually, are God's temple, Right? He's talking about the church. It's plural. So, here, just to show you <laughs> what it might say, contextually, plural, so you understand. Like, Don't you know that you yourselves, the church in Corinth, are God's temple in Corinth? And that God's spirit dwells in your midst. If anyone destroys God's temple, the local church in Corinth, God will destroy that person, for God's temple is sacred, and you, the church in Corinth, together are God's temple. Okay? The church, the local church, they were not a building. They were God's temple in Corinth. They were the alternative to the pagan idols and temples. They're supposed to be the place where God dwells by his spirit. God's temple. 
So he, he really thinks highly of the local church. This isn't a small thing. We are God's temple, okay? The local community. Not catch the fire. I'm talking about the church in Ottawa, okay? All of us. God's temple. We happen to be an expression of it. I'm talking about the gathered assembly of believers, wherever that might be occurring. So, the local church is God's temple in the city, wherever it's located, because of the, it's the place of his presence. I can't say that enough. The people of his presence. What makes the church the temple is that his spirit dwells in their midst. That's what he says there. Don't you know that the spirit dwells in your midst? You're God's temple. And they're to be God's alternative to Corinth's pagan temples and shrines. And at that time, there were 26 in that city. That's a lot of pagan temples. And they are supposed to be God's alternative to those pagan temples of idolatry. Now, Paul, I want to show you this. Paul makes a similar point in 2 Corinthians 6. Talk about idolatry now, distinguishing them from the other pagan temples. Okay? And it's making the point, you're God's temple. And in fact, he finishes, or he quotes Isaiah 37, or Ezekiel 37, 27. He says, my dwelling place will be with them. I'll be their God and they'll be my people. I will dwell with them. This is a fulfillment of these promises of the new covenant. So this is 2 Corinthians 6, 16 to 18. If I had time, I'd give you the whole context, but you'll see from these verses what he's saying. What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. And God has said, I will live with them, I'll walk among them, I'll be their God, and they'll be my people. We're fulfilling those promises now. God, by his Holy Spirit, is walking personally among us. He is now present. His presence is back in our lives and, into, and corporately as, a, as a, a gathered community. So the point, God is a very high esteem for the gathered uh, church and considers it sacred because it's the place of his presence. That's a big deal. The fact that the Holy Spirit comes, you feel his presence because we're gathering together in his name. How many of you felt his presence during worship? Come on, yeah. That's a big deal. That's what makes us the temple of the Holy Spirit. His presence is here. Whether you feel it or not, his presence is here. So, however, the Corinthians were destroying God's temple because they're quarreling and divisions in their human wisdom. This is why God gives them this, one of the most severest warnings in the New Testament. He's going to destroy the people that are destroying them, that are creating these divisions. It's a big deal. So, be careful. <laughs> That's why Paul says in Ephesians, keep the unity of the Spirit. Then later on in that chapter, in chapter 4, he says, don't, verse 30, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God. In the context of biting and devouring each other and quarreling and arguments and stuff. Same thing. Okay? Same thing. So, this is, look at how he ends. Chapter 3 now. Verse 18 to 23. Do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you're wise by the standards of this age, remember the age, the age to come, talking about this age, the age of the flesh, Satan's age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. It's foolish. As it's written, he catches the wise in their craftiness, and again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then, no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours. Talking about God's eschatological people now, look at how he goes back to this. He says, are you, are you not acting like mere human beings now? He's like, look at who you are. This is who you are. All things are yours, present tense. You're God's eschatological people. All things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you're of Christ and Christ is of God. You see that? He's appealing to the fact you guys are supposed to be God's heavenly end time eschatological people living in the present age. The values and lifestyle of heaven. 
And you're living like the world still. You have to overcome that. So the gospel has at its heart God creating a people for his name. Okay? It's a colony of heaven living the life of heaven now, not waiting to get there, which is a lot, what a lot of Christians do. We're supposed to be living that life now in the present age. It's the Sermon on the Mount. Live like this. This is how people live in heaven. Live like this now by the Spirit. So it's now that we live as an outpost of heaven so that people will want to see what heaven's really like by watching us live the life of the future now by the Spirit. That's the point. So we're God's temple. That's awesome news. What should we do in light of all this? I want to apply this to now us now as a local church. What should we do with the fact that we're God's temple right now? So we as a gathered community of faith are God's temple because his spirit dwells in our midst. It's amazing. The thing that should be evidence when we're gathered is that, we're, that the spirit is present among us. That's what distinguishes us from any other pe- people. The people of his presence. We're not just some club Right? A lot of people gather for different reasons. And why do we gather? Because we're a people of the presence, and his presence comes when we, when we gather in his name. That's what distinguishes us. Okay, so this is our identity as a people of God, that we're a people marked by the presence of God. Now, these are some important questions we got to ask. What are we building? Are we building with gold, silver, precious stones, or with wood, hay, and stubble? Okay? Are we building churches, buildings, franchises, movements, right? What are we building? We're called to be the habitation of the Lord, the dwelling place of God himself, us, the place where he wants to dwell. That's what we're called to be. That's what we're called to build. And if you remember at the beginning of this year, I gave you the Number one thing is to be a place that hosts the presence of God. That is tremendously biblical, and that's what I'm talking about today. That's what we're supposed to be, a resting place for God, a place where he wants to come. Okay? So, some other questions that we should ask. What would the church, and I've asked this before, but I want to ask it again. What would the church look like if it was built entirely with the devotion, we want to build a place the Lord wants to come to, and not be so concerned about whether people come or not. Right? Our devotion, what would church look like if we actually live this way? That we want to build a place the Lord actually wants to come to. Not the latest fad or the lights. And the, I mean, there's nothing wrong with that, you know. But, but are we trying to attract people with smoke and lights and stuff or with the presence of the living God? Hmm? I would much rather be known as a place of the presence than with the latest thing going on to attract young people or whatever. Not to say we shouldn't attract young people. You see what I'm saying? That's the, that's the way of the world's going. Just read any Christian magazine, how to grow your church. It's what it's all about. It's sad. I have to see this all the time. It's sad. What would the church look like if we built the church to attract the Holy Spirit instead of just trying to attract people? There's nothing wrong with attracting people. But what's attracting people? Us and our performance and how good we do things? Or our techniques? Or the presence of the living God? That's the question we always need to be asking. Think about this. What good is the most glorious temple if God isn't in it? 
You know? It's worthless. It's not the temple's nice-looking building that makes it cool. It's God is present there. That's what makes it awesome. That's what made people want to go to the temple in the Old Testament, is that his presence was there. If God is in it, then it's not going to be the temple that gets your attention. It's going to be the fact that God is there. His presence is there in your midst. Okay, so many times we try and build churches for appearances rather than building the body for strength. And I have this in brackets here. Rick Joyner shared this vision he had once of this bodybuilder, and he wanted to be a surfer. But rather than bodybuilding for strength, he, bought, he built his body for appearance, to look good. And then when the wave came, it almost took him out. Talking about the church now, are we building for appearance? Or are we building for strength, to strengthen the body? So that we can actually be a temple of the Holy Spirit built on the foundation of Christ crucified. Not the wisdom of this age. So many times, oh yeah, not about appearances. It's not about appearances. Jesus makes that clear. It's the presence of the Spirit that's going to make the difference. That's what's going to make the difference. If God is really manifest here, people aren't going to be leaving here talking about us and how good the performance was. They're going to be leaving talking about God. How many of you have been in meetings like that? I've been in meetings like that in Toronto and stuff. I mean, and hopefully here, but Toronto, right? You don't leave there talking about how good the worship team was. They got good worship teams. You leave there talking about, man, God was so present in that place and I got transformed. My life was forever marked and changed because of that. That's what, that's what people are going to be talking about if God's really present manifest in a local church. Okay? They're going to be thinking about God more. They're going to be drawn to him, in love with him, and that's the fruit of it. That's the fruit of it. So our goal is this. When con- contact with us, this should be our goal. When people contact us as a local community, this makes them want to run home and get with God to get closer to God, okay? That should be our goal. When people contact us, that they leave wanting more of God. How many of you had that experience in Toronto? I mean, that's something we could, a lot of us can relate to. Yeah, you just want to go home and be with God. That was my experience. That's what we want to be like. That's the only, now the, the only, it's only going to be imparted by us if it's something we're doing. We can only impart who we are. That's why this is our goal as a church. That's why we have to ask those questions that I posed earlier. So the thing that ought to be evidenced when we're gathered in his name is the sense that God is present among us by the Spirit and that we're a people who are marked by the presence of God. That's what marks us. That's how we're truly going to live as God's alternative to this pagan world all around us, is that we're people of the presence and that God is in our midst. And I alluded to that earlier. We talked about those testimonies in 1 Corinthians 14, where if an unbeliever comes in and he falls to his knees because his heart was exposed by prophecy, and says, God is really among you. This is for real. Power encounters, encountering the living God, that's what we're called to be. So it doesn't matter. The rest of the stuff we do doesn't matter in terms of how we do it. I'm talking about technique now. It's not about technique. 
The question is whether the presence of the Spirit of God is so vitally present in this place that it makes a difference to the people that are here and it makes a difference to the people who come. And this is our mandate as a local church. This is our mandate as a local church. This. (laughs) How we get there is what we pray about. How we become this is what we pray about. Now, don't get me wrong. The Spirit is present here, but there's always more. There's always more. And we want to go for it. How many want to go for it? Come on. I know you guys do. I know you do. You guys are hungry just like me. So this is what we're called to do, okay? This is our mandate. What's your vision of a local church? This. Temple of the living God. Because that's every local church's mandate. That's scripturally what it's supposed to be. Let's pray. (laughs) Father, we just thank you so much for your presence. We thank you so much for your goodness and your kindness and that in the new covenant that we get to be a people among whom your presence dwells. We thank you for the fulfillment of all these promises of the old covenant that you're going to come back and manifest in your presence and that the new covenant will be marked and that you're going to put your spirit in us and that you'll inspire us to live according to your decrees. Lord, we just thank you for the honor and privilege it is to worship you in spirit and in truth. And God, we just ask for this revelation that they had. That we could actually ask the question, aren't you acting like a mere human being? And it wouldn't be weird, but we'd be like, oh, you're right. i got to be acting like the age of the spirit of heaven to earth. Lord, we just ask as Jesus told us to pray that your will be done, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Help us to live that way. Help us to live the Sermon on the Mount by your Spirit. Help us to live as the people of God, a colony of heaven, living the future now in the present, showing people what heaven's like through the manifestations of the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit, prophecy, all the stuff, the powers of the age to come. Help us to be that people, the temple of the Holy Spirit, the alternative to the pagan world all around us, that people would come and hear, and it would be a sanctuary of your presence, a place where God dwells, that people would fall their knees and say, God is truly in your midst. Help us to be that people. Lord, we just thank you so much for these realities that you show us glimpses of in your New Testament in the Bible. We just ask you for the revelation, the wisdom and revelation by your spirit to know how to get to that place where we would be your true alternative to the world by your spirit as a gathered community. We thank you so much for that in Jesus' name. Amen.